Welcome to The Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Hines, and oh, sh- it's Monday. Hi, everybody. It is Monday. It is indeed. And if you're feeling like you need a fresh start today, take it. Hit the reset button on your life. I am here for it. I love a fresh start. That clean planner page just feels so good. Okay, so I wanted to take a minute and check in with you all. How did last week's lab work go? By the way, you you do not have to do this. It's not a pressured thing. I just want to give you guys something to walk away with so you can apply this to your life because I really do want you to learn something and apply what we're talking about on Change Lab to your life. So anyhow, if you had any insights or ahas about how you've used the resolution model of change in the past or how you're using it now, I would really love to hear from you, seriously. So don't hesitate to send me any thoughts or questions at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com. I really would love to hear from you. We really do learn and evolve our thinking and our practice together. So your feedback is truly invaluable and it's invaluable to me and also to everybody here in this community because we're learning together. So truly, please do reach out to me and I have no doubt that your insights or questions will inspire a future episode. You guys will have great things to add. Alrighty, so let's dive back into the great conundrum of our allergy to change. So today I wanted to start by quickly recapping how the resolution model of change works and how it's leaving you high and dry by not addressing the real roadblock to your transformation. And then we're going to get into the hidden mechanism of the mind that is unconsciously protecting us from perceived threats and how that automatic protective drive has locked us in a perpetual state of you know, wanting to change and yet working against the change at the same time. So the resolution model relies on two levers to generate change, right? So motivation and willpower, those are our two levers. So first we're told that we need to create a pressure buildup of motivation. And then we use the powerful energy of the pressure that is built up to exert force down on our will, giving us the strength to resist the short-term temptation in order to meet our long-term goal. That's the general idea, right? And don't get me wrong, right? We keep using this approach because it does work. It's worked for me and it's worked for you. You have powered through a challenging study session in high school to avoid failing a class. You have vigilantly abstain from carbs and sweets to fit into a wedding dress or the jeans that are giving you side eye in your closet, right? You've given alcohol the Heisman in dry January. You've shown up every damn day for your marathon training. You can do hard things, right? There is no doubt. You guys have all done very hard things. But whether the effortful burst is an hour a day, a week, a month, or even a year, if you continue to rely on motivation and willpower alone, the old behaviors will eventually creep back in. And you'll be shaking your head and telling me in a coaching session, 
you know, I fell off the wagon. I'm right back where I started. I used to be so good. What's wrong with me? And what does this sound like? Yes, the inevitable shame that follows the motivation and willpower. It's the the shame cherry on top of a pile of dashed hopes. It's stinky. <laughs> but when it comes to making lasting, permanent changes, the motivation and willpower, you know, resolution model, it just does not work. It just doesn't work because it's trying to solve the problem with the wrong solution. So I'm going to give you an example to illustrate what this looks like in real life. And uh, let's use one of the most common self-improvement goals, weight loss. Most of us will try to lose weight at some point in our lives. And lucky for us, there are hundreds of diet plans and protocols out there that give very clear and direct instructions as to how to lose weight. I mean, <laughs> you name it, there is a diet plan for you. Just, it's incredible if you look up how many wacky ones there are out there. Okay, we've got expert telling us what to do up the wazoo. We've got programs that, you know, they lay it out meal by meal or they'll even deliver food right to your door. So, you know, theoretically, it's incredibly simple. You do exactly what the expert tells you to do until you reach your desired weight, right? Done. What is the problem, <laughs> right? It's very straightforward. So why are millions of us, and it is millions, that's what the statistics say, right? We're endlessly searching for the secret to weight loss, signing up for new diets every year, only to end up back where we started. And you all know exactly how this goes, right? You start the diet with enthusiasm and motivation and so much optimism. You nobly stick to the plan using your motivation-fueled discipline, right? It, it's not easy, but you do it. And after weeks and months of white-knuckling it through your urges and delaying your gratification, you lose the weight. But if you're like most dieters, and, you know, statistics vary, but in general, this is what ultimately happens in the short term, the diet works. But in the long run, studies show that the vast majority of dieters gain the weight back. And to add insult to injury, they gain the weight back plus more. I think it's like 7% more. <laughs> it's brutal. So I was looking this up because, you know, I wanted to know, I'm not an expert on... <laughs> on the effectiveness of diets. So anyway, I found this interesting article from the psychology department at UCLA. The lead author was this woman, Tracy Mann. Anyhow, this is a good study, right? It's looking at 30 long-term studies of diets and it's analyzing all of them. And here is what the lead author, Tracy Mann, had to say. And I quote, we found that the majority of people regained all the weight plus more. Sustained weight loss was found only in a small minority of participants, while complete weight regain was found in the majority. Diets do not lead to sustained weight loss or health benefits for the majority of people. This is from 2007. I mean, we're still doing this. I think we're still doing this because even though we know it doesn't really work, it does actually kind of work. If you follow them to the letter, you're going to lose weight but they don't work if your goal is to keep the weight off permanently. Why? Because our motivation and willpower are inconsistent and not permanent sources of activation energy, right? Like life gets hard, you have a tough day, like it's hard to muster up the motivation and willpower. It's just the way it works, right? And this is really important. 
Of course, having motivation and some critical moments of willpower are necessary for change, but they are not sufficient. (laughs) Oh my God. Are you guys so bored of hearing me say this again and again? I do know that I sound like a mockingbird, but I'm really doing it on purpose because this old school model is so ingrained in our culture that it's probably going to take some time for you to release your mental claws from the belief that when it comes down to it, you're just, you know, you're just bad and lazy and you just don't care enough to put in the work. It's going to take some time for you to disabuse yourself of this belief system. I promise you, permanently losing weight or making any permanent change is not about your character. It's about completely overhauling your beliefs, attitudes, values, and even your identity. Okay, you literally need to become a different person who has a different relationship with food. If you want to permanently lose weight and permanently change your weight, you have to become a different person who has a different relationship with food. A person who actually chooses to, and most importantly, likes to eat in a way that maintains the permanent weight loss. This is critical. You need to become a person who actually doesn't need to use either motivation or willpower to eat only when hungry or stop after one slice of pizza because there's no longer any inner resistance to fight against, right? This is the only way this really works in the long run. And to do this, we need a completely different approach to change, an approach that is directly addressing the root cause of our resistance the belief systems that are activating your psychological immune system to keep you safe. And in order to keep you safe, work against your efforts to change. By the way, you are very welcome to call your belief systems your BS because, you know, tomato, tomato, we make it all up anyhow. All right. So let's actually move on to our psychological immune system and really get to the heart of it all. I want you to understand how your psychological immune system works. So you can learn how to keep it from rooster blocking your goals. Seriously, (laughs) you need to understand it to be able to work with it. And as I mentioned in the last episode, just like our body, our mind has an immune system that is working around the clock outside of our conscious awareness to protect us from perceived threats to our survival and keep us alive. This ancient system of cognitive mechanisms has evolved to shield us from emotional distress thank goodness, and preserve a stable and coherent sense of self, which is very useful when it comes to avoiding a padded cell. Life is hard, guys, right? Life is hard and it's supposed to be hard. And our lovely brains have evolved to adapt and keep us intact, you know, our sense of self intact, despite the fact that managing our survival and the survival of the people we love in a rather uncertain and complex world is genuinely stressful. So what's the problem if it's keeping us relatively sane and functional? Well, remember what our physical immune system does to that critically important new heart after transplant surgery? Often it rejects it. The foreign organ that we desperately need, you know, the person needs to to live, is mistaken for a threat to a very tightly calibrated inner ecosystem. And in the same way, our protective psychological immune system also sends out, you know, proverbial antibodies to attack the new behavior change we're trying to implant because something about the change threatens our psychological homeostasis. Anytime you are resisting a change with 
one foot on the gas wanting that change and another foot on the brake resisting that change, just know that your psychological immune system is activated and at work. Like this is what's going on, right? So this is why your motivation and willpower are hitting up against a brick wall. And it's just so frustrating, right? Like or you just, you want to change and you're just like, you feel like you can't. It's maddening, right? But it's not that your resolve is weak. It's that your psychological immune system is bloody strong. And thank goodness for that. So what are the threats that get your mind's immune system so activated and freaked out? Well, there are five main categories of psychological threats and your mind's immune system will work very hard behind the scenes to protect you from these prospective dangers. It's easiest to remember these threats by its acronym, SCARF. So S is status, C is certainty, A, autonomy, R, relatedness, F is fairness. So these are the five big psychological threats. A change that threatens our status is one that potentially jeopardizes our identity. It puts how people see us and our relative importance to them at risk. A change that threatens our sense of certainty is one that disturbs the predictability of the future and leaves us feeling vulnerable to an uncertain outcome. A change that threatens our autonomy is one that puts our freedom from control or influence in danger. I mean, think about the changes you want to make and you're like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> That's what's going on. Okay. A change that threatens relatedness is one that might upset our sense of safety and connection with others. It might create tension with an important other or it even might end a relationship altogether. That's a change that threatens our relatedness. That's a biggie. And finally, a change that threatens our sense of fairness is one that activates our hardwired unfairness detector. And I really want you guys to hear me out on this. It is your amygdala's mandate to protect you from these threats that is making you work against your very genuine desire to change. And I hope this makes you feel a little bit more compassionate toward yourself. Like you're doing this to protect yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't change and we shouldn't work to change. I deeply believe that, I mean, a la episode one, our whole journey in life is about our evolution. But we need to be solving the problem with the right solution and not banging our head against the wall. There are too many people suffering and beating themselves up and just calling themselves names and criticizing themselves and feeling like crap because they're trying to solve a problem with the wrong solution. All right, so let me give you an example here. So if your conscious commitment to go to bed earlier or, I don't know, tell the truth and stop saying yes when you mean no, if those conscious commitments are not going so well, and by the way, both of these goals are developmentally important and reflect two very important kind of milestones. One, the ability to self-govern and two, an internalized self-concept. So these are goals that we really want to accomplish, right? So none of this is to say like, hey, hang it up. Changing is too hard. Not at all. But if these two goals, you know, for example, are not going well and you, you keep doing exactly what you said you wouldn't do, you are hitting up against your psychological immune system, unconscious commitment to protect you from a scarf threat. That's what's going on. So consciously, you really have a commitment to get yourself to bed earlier and to stop sneaking late night TV that's become more mean time than me time. I'm speaking for a friend. <laughs> but below the surface, 
You have a competing commitment to not let anyone or anything dictate what you do with your time when you finally get to enjoy a few hours of quiet when no one needs you. (laughs) Can, Can you feel it? I can feel that. I can feel that competing commitment. Or you're skirting around the truth to avoid hurting other people's feelings and saying yes when you really mean no. And you can see that doing this is creating problems in your life. And at a conscious level, you are sincerely committed to working on telling people the truth about how you really feel. But below your conscious awareness, your immune system is on red alert, red alert to protect you from a relatedness threat. It's like, like, oh my God, if I tell my husband the truth that I want us to go do things with our friends more often, it's going to cause a lot of tension in our marriage. So let's not pretend we did. This is what's going on, right? On the other side of this commitment to tell the truth about how you feel is a hidden competing commitment to keep pretending that all you need in your relationship are quiet, cozy nights watching TV together on the couch because your immune system believes that if you tell the truth, it's going to be catastrophic to your relationship. So I'm going to walk you through a more extensive example from one of my own, it's a case study from one of my coaching clients, and I'm going to change her name for the sake of privacy. So we're going to call her Molly. But Molly, my client, she's a writer. And at the time that she started working with me, she was deeply stuck in this, you know, hellacious no man's land of her inner battle between wanting to write and then doing everything but writing. This is what was going on when she started working with me. And I want to give you some very important context. So Molly's debut novel, which had been published a few years before, was critically acclaimed. It was a big hit. And this, without debate, is a writer's dream. Like, how awesome to write your first novel and have it be a massive success. But now she was writing book number two and was doing more grocery shopping than she was writing. So this is why she started working with me. So what's the problem here? Like she clearly knows how to discipline herself to write consistently and finish a novel. I mean, we know that because she's done it before. She wrote a novel already. So she definitely knows how to sit down and get herself to write. She's also smart enough to have read every single article online and listened to all the inspiring podcasts about how to overcome writer's block. (laughs) She's no dummy. She's read all this stuff, right? She's created a distraction-free space. She's tried scheduling writing sessions on her Google calendar. She's tried criticizing herself and yelling at herself like a drill sergeant, and none of it is working. And it has been months and no progress has been made. And she's feeling super frustrated and on the verge of defeated. So I'm going to show you how her psychological immune system was shutting her down and was just making it impossible for her to write. And I'm going to use Keegan and Leahy, so Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's Immunity to Change Framework. It's called an immunity map. So I'm going to walk you through the framework that I would walk a client through so that you can understand this. So Molly stated her growth goal in our coaching work as this. She said, I'm committed to getting better at writing 4,500 words a week. And as a side note, it's really important to state a growth goal in the affirmative and not the negative. So that's great. She's committed to getting better, not perfect, but getting better at writing 4,500 words a week. So then I did need to address the motivation piece, right? So I asked her how important this was, like how important is this goal for you on a scale of one to five, one being not important at all, five being extremely important. And she said, it's a five. She was deeply motivated. 
it wasn't a lack of motivation. And her conscious commitment to start writing 4,500 words a week was truly genuine. I could feel her desperation. She really wanted to figure this out. But what I wanted to know next was this. And this is what I asked her. If there was a video camera filming you, what would I see you doing and not doing instead of writing? I mean, I want actions. Like what, if, what would I visibly see you doing when you have scheduled your writing time? And I asked her to give me a radical, like radically honest inventory of the behaviors I would see her doing during that time. Like instead of writing, what are you doing? And this is tough. It's tough to do, right? It's tough and embarrassing. It's like, oh, to have to tattle on yourself because we do all sorts of silly things to avoid making progress on our goals. But here's what she told me that she was doing instead of making progress. She was making detailed grocery lists beautiful grocery list, creating elaborate schedules on her Google calendar, scrolling through social media, saying yes to events that were not as important to her as her writing, lots of household chores and errands, and looking up what other writers were doing and falling down the rabbit hole of compare and despair. Right? Do, do you feel seen? This is so real. We all do this. This is so normal. Okay. And then here's what she said she was not doing that was undermining her goal. She was not opening her Word doc. She was not thinking about the next scene, not making time to solve story problems. So, you know, she's saying like, I'm not actually making time in my schedule to like sit down and think about the story and solve the problems and stuff. Like I'm not actually giving myself time to do that. And I'm not writing full stop, (laughs) not doing it at all. Okay. So we begin to see a picture, right? That's so familiar. It's so familiar to all of us. We've got one foot pressing down on the gas, consciously setting a goal, and the other foot pressing down hard on the brake, unconsciously undermining that goal. On the surface, this makes no sense. It's illogical, right? Like, What's a problem? Why can't you just set a timer and make yourself do it? She just needs to put her butt in the chair and write. Criticizing someone else, we totally talk like this. So judgmental. But the only thing I actually know right now with Molly is that she's just not able to do it, right? That's all I know. I do know that there's a logic to this incongruent behavior. There is a payoff. I know that. I don't know what it is yet, but I do know that there's a payoff. Otherwise, she wouldn't be doing it, right? We we don't do things that don't have some sort of benefit. So when I asked her, if she was forced by Ms. Trunchbull to do the opposite of all those avoidance behaviors and just sit down and write, damn it, what would make that so hard? The visceral fear or dread that was immediately coming up for her. And here's what she said. She said, if she wrote the book, so if she started writing consistently every day and she finished the book, she would have to publicly, and this was these are her words, publicly acknowledge that she failed. And this dread had her by the neck. And as she started to explain to me what was really going on in her head, all of this made a whole lot of sense to me, right? So after her first successful novel, she had assumed, and I think she thought everyone would expect for her second novel to be picked up by one of the big five publishing houses. But she hadn't been able to get a publishing deal or an agent from one of the big five for her second book's proposal. And in the meantime, like, you know, over the last years since the first book was published, she's been teaching and coaching first-time writers 
how to go through this process and how to get a book deal, et cetera, et cetera. And now she's likely going to have to get this book published with a small press or, and this was like one of her biggest dreads, she was going to have to self-publish. Like she could barely get it out of her mouth to say that out loud. So each day of writing this book was a step closer to, in her words, okay, having to publicly come clean with her failure. That is so intense, right? I completely empathize with her resistance, right? I mean, I'm sure that you do too. All of a sudden, like her faffing about with her to-do list and social media scrolling and errand running, it doesn't seem so irrational. It seems reasonable. I get it. She had a very strong competing commitment to not fail in public and lose her status as a successful novelist. And her psychological immune system was trying to protect her at all costs from this catastrophe because she believed, and these are her words, if she didn't stand out as a success, then there was nothing special about her. Like, oh, you like want to cry. You can see how just how painful this is. And so you want to put motivation and willpower up against her instinctual drive to protect herself from a threat to her whole identity. It's like, no way. In one corner, we have the featherweight willpower. And in the other corner, we have the heavyweight, biologically wired instinct to self-protect. Like checking off her to-do list and cleaning your toilets are going to win every single time. 100%. So once she could see, you know, clearly see what she was up against, she realized that she didn't need to work on her procrastination. That's not the problem. She needed to question the accuracy of the belief system that had her psychological immune system so terrified. This idea that if she's not standing out as a success, then there's nothing special about her. That's what she needed to question. And how we work to overturn this belief and a number of other beliefs and assumptions that she had I mean, that's a topic for a whole other episode, but that's what we do in our coaching. That's what we were working on. But I hope what you take away from today's episode is this. Lasting change, the change you actually really want, requires that we upgrade our mental operating system and transform the way that we think because every enduring change in your behavior is in fact an expression of a change in your mindset. So please, please, please ask me any questions by emailing me at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com. I threw a whole lot of material at you today. So thanks for hanging in there. But man, I hope these two episodes begin to permanently change the way you think about change. All right. Have a wonderful week and your lab work is to take a break from beating yourself up for blowing off your good intentions and just try to observe with no judgment, objectively, how you blow off your goals. How are you doing it? What are you doing? Just observe. But most importantly, be nice to your psychological immune system, okay? Doctors orders. For more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashahines.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com or find me on Instagram at drsashahines. If you're enjoying The Change Lab, 
There are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with a friend or five. Or head over to drsashaheinz.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Monday.